Good morning, all you wonderful listeners, and welcome to episode 18 of the High Action Podcast. Coming at you on this fine Monday morning, or for Perry, fine Monday afternoon. And today we're going to talk about melodies and developing melodies and interpreting melodies and all things melody related. Before we do that, we want to remind you to visit us on Patreon, patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. Got lots of fun things going on there. We're um, putting all kinds of scheming ideas together for future shows and dates, so you're definitely going to want to keep in touch with us, keep up with us um, on the gram and on the Ron Patreon, on the on. Uh, before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to Heritage Guitars. Heritage Guitars, since 1985, have been crafting the finest American-made guitars from the famed 225 Parsons Street Factory in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Heritage Guitars' vibrant and impressive collection of guitars combine classic and modern designs with premium materials and over a century of guitar building experience. I am playing their H575 model, which I really love. It's a little tinier than a 175, and it doesn't feed back as much because it's got a thicker top than my 58, yeah, 58 reissue. So shout out to Heritage Guitars, John and Perry. How's it going today? It's going good, man. I got my my 175 here, my little maple top, and it's feeding back like a motherfucker, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your Perry, your guitar has a thicker top than my 175. Yeah. And it, it took me a while to realize that. And what I think that basically means, John, I'm sure you'd agree, is I feel like ones with a thinner top are a little more acoustically crisp. Yeah. But for loud settings, they're kind of just not really the move. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, I mean, Gibson's discontinued all of these models, but it's great heritage is picked up. I mean, heritages are awesome. Yes. Um, I'm playing a Fender DeQuisto today. That's a vintage guitar from the '80s. That was kind of a an early laminate archtop. So we're all we're all playing laminates today. That's kind of cool. Um, and yeah, the the modern 175 was a three ply top. And then when they did your reissue, you know, they were getting a lot of calls to do those '50s guitars, which had either a single or double ply top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're they're different. They're lighter, you know. And yeah. if you play a real '50s 175, which we all have too, it's amazing how light. Those mm-hmm. guitars are, and then you play the modern ones, and they're freaking heavy. But like Perry, we've talked about over the years, there's something about that. We, I, I, I actually like that. I like a guitar that feels really robust like that. Like mm-hmm. Diorio's 175 was also kind of one of those lighter ones from the from the early 70s, late 60s. Yeah, you know? well, I have I haven't had too much feedback problems, too many feedback problems with this 175, and you know, kind of get into the subject of the day will um you know playing melodies on a box right you do have to deal mm-hmm. with feedback you know depending on the uh, guitar you have but what's sure. one of the things that you want to start out with today regarding melodies with these guitars well maybe we could do a quick little overview of some key components of what determines a melody so some some great right. bullet points would be elements like duration how long or short the note is the pitch what note it is, the timbre or texture, meaning like the quality or the mood of the note, and the loudness or the dynamics. Mm. So those are four realms that, you know, you could change one of them can and you it say, completely can you say them again? change. Can you say them again for all our listeners? You want them again? Yeah. So duration, pitch, timbre, 
and loudness. Okay. Right. I like, it. I like that. I'm writing well, it down. Keep going. Good. Good. Yeah, taking good. notes. Taking notes. Um, so duration, something on guitar. I, I feel like if you listen to horn sections, they have to think about the blending and duration of a note on guitar. It can be kind of easy to let that fall to the side sometimes. Yeah. Right. So I, the melody that I'm going to tear apart first is going to be lovey and rose. One of my favorite melodies of all time. Um, and like, as far as articulation, a lot of the notes are longer. So if I were to then go, that kind of makes it sound a, sound a little more playful, right? Mm -hmm. By just by shortening them. Mm -hmm. uh, the pitch on guitar, we're dealing with a fretted instrument, so. I, I don't know exactly if that's the best example. Maybe that would be more of a singing or a, you know, if you listen to the way Louis sings Lovey and Rose or the way he plays it, he's bending up to these notes and putting all these grace notes in. So an example like Louis Armstrong singing Lovey and Rose, one of my favorite recordings. Yeah. What if we go to loudness? Okay. So what if I play the first part of Lovey and Rose? I just state it. And then maybe on the bridge... I bring up the dynamics a little bit and then maybe bring it back down. So one of the aspects that controls the dynamics is even just changing the octave mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. that yeah. melody kind of ascends so it has its own natural dynamic direction me playing through uh compressed strymon iridium into logic doesn't give the most dynamic interpretation of it but hopefully that gave you some ideas of those four main essential elements of melody duration pitch timbre and loudness. Can Perry, I, what do you think? You got a melody you want to try? I do, but can I unpack what you did a little yeah. bit more? So like, um, you know, achieving those qualities, I, you're playing a lot with the touch on your right hand, you know, the vibrato mm -hmm. or lack of vibrato in your left hand, um, and the tone that you're getting out of the guitar, how you're choosing to do that. Can you talk just mm -hmm. a little bit about those three things? Like, how your touch affects it, where you're playing to get your tone with your right hand, and yeah. what kind of vibrato you're using? Well, that'll all depend on context. Yeah. In this case, where we're in a vacuum, we can really uh, massage the melody notes. Oh, yeah. I like it when right? you massage those melody notes. You like that? Oh, yeah. I'm using a little bit of vibrato. I usually i am kind of picking in that spot right at the... Uh, Depends on the let's, guitar let's too, call it right? The Depends eastern the end of the pickup. <laughs> eastern. 
right? That depends on which it's way you're facing. facing east as I'm looking down at my pickup. I'm I'm picking right above the eastern tip of my neck pickup. If I move closer up the neck, I, it's it, that's not quite articulate enough for me. And if I move too far back, maybe I'd have to do that if I was really trying to cut through like a big band to play that melody. To play further back, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about what yeah. about vibrato? What about your left hand? How are you choosing the extent of vibrato, or, or is it conscious? Definitely conscious. I think a melody like that, I'm inclined to naturally use a little vibrato because it's so singing and sustained, right? As opposed to a melody like Scrapple from the Apple, you're gonna kind of just play it a little straighter because there's more notes and there's less sustained notes. But a melody like this. So here's that phrase without any vibrato. Which, I mean, the sound of an archtop guitar doing that is really beautiful. And maybe I actually should experiment with a little less vibrato sometimes. I think my natural inclination is to definitely use some. Well, this is why I brought it up, because I feel like vibrato, when it comes to playing melodies on a box, is a highly debated topic. You know, especially uh -huh. guys that come from playing more blues, blues. or like electric guitar type melodies. They might be stylistically using quite a lot a vibrato mm -hmm. and then they come on a box and they start playing and it sounds like it may not be within the style but i actually think vibrato is good on melodies i mean john um maybe jump in here to talk about something i was going to mention which was diorio talking to us about melodies this is great joe diorio he had this like slow wide vibrato that was really beautiful for ballads you know especially on the on the low notes playing melodies don't you agree john yeah, and like you pointed out, you know, vibrato on guitar is kind of a stylistic feature of, you know, a lot of contemporary styles on this instrument, you know, yeah. like the really rapid vibrato. But, you know, the thing that's kind of funny is saxophone players in the 50s and 60s, guys like Coltrane, even later, you know, Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster, these guys who played actually with a lot of vibrato when they were younger, because that was a sound of the swing era. You know, it became very dated, you know, to yeah. these people. Kind of like to us, how like using a chorus pedal was really dated for a long time. Now it's coming back. But, hmm. and as a result, we imitate those sounds. And like, remember Joe talking a lot about, this is again, Joe DiOrio for those who are listening. Um, the uh, greatest, one of the greatest guitar players of, of all time. He talked a lot about imitating and trying to really get that slower vibrato that Coltrane used on a lot of his recordings later on and how difficult that is on our instrument. Um, you know, he even, you know, he experimented a lot with the string gauge to get the optimal kind of way to, to get that sound. Um, yeah. And personally for me, I've, I play mostly with a straight tone and uh, because I, I find that like the vibrato for me, the, the louder I get, the harder it is to control. And sometimes a lot of that nuance is, is lost for me when I'm playing in a larger group. But if I'm playing like, solo guitar or playing really quiet or playing duo with another guitarist i can explore more of the um of the sound of the of the vibrato on our on our instrument it's really predominant in classical guitar too yeah and i was watching a lot of videos of jim hall recently because i've been in a, a jim hall phase working on a new project it's kind of a tribute to jim and you watch him play and he takes his thumb off of the neck when he does the vibrato and really gets a lot of slow vibrato and then puts the thumb back on the neck 
And I've been experimenting with that. And it's, it's really interesting, um, you know, to get that kind of almost like 360 degree rotation of the note on the fretboard versus when you're, right. when your thumbs on the neck, you kind of just get a, a vertical, ro you know, motion of the note. So, um, I think yeah, the, the idea that, behind know, just, that, the idea behind that must be, you can get more weight right on the, on the, on the finger for the vibrato when your thumb is off. That must be the yeah. idea. And Jim, I mean, you know, what's so great about Jim Hall, we have footage of him from the 60s, 70s, well, even earlier, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. That's one thing that was always consistent about Jim's playing. You watch the footage of him playing in Jimmy Giuffre's band in black and white, and he's taking his thumb off to do the vibrato. And then you're watching him in his later life in like the late 20-teens or tw 2000s, and he's, doing, he's experimenting a lot with that vibrato. So I have a feeling guys like that really... We're listening to how Paul Desmond and Train were using vibrato in a longer way because, again, it just it, it was not the sound of modern jazz to use heavy vibrato. That's the sound of Sidney Bechet. It's the sound of Louis Armstrong. It's the sound of jazz from 1910 to about 1939, 1945. You know, right? Yeah. So that's been a. I I you really hit it on the head, you guys, with this subject because I find that this is something that's it's really an in-depth study to like really play a melody and determine, you know, what is your approach to vibrato? Because I know you guys probably see this a lot. People who come to you for jazz guitar lessons are playing with a lot of vibrato because they've played a solid body and they're playing a lot of styles and they don't think about how that applies to the style of jazz music that they're actually mm -hmm. playing, you know, because we wouldn't play like that on a on a clarinet or a soprano saxophone or a, you know, a trumpet in a, in a way to, if you wanted to get a modern Right. sound you know what do you think Will? can i jump in yeah what do you think well, I, that's a good point and i think even if you just <clears throat> if you're talking about teaching students if you listen to a student just play a scale some like you mentioned john some of the innate things they do i was teaching one last week and they had a tendency even if we're just playing a, a minor pentatonic scale yeah to yeah. slide into notes or to hammer on yes or to glissando up. And these are just, it's really interesting. They're embedded in their subconscious. Yeah. And just things like that, that will carry into the way you interpret a melody as well. So I, I always like to try to de-stylize everything, especially if you're just going over scales in the morning yeah. and start on a flat plane, right? But sliding, yes. sliding and bending, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like we've got the... Um, It's like one of the mm -hmm. greatest melodies mm -hmm. of all time, right? Mm -hmm. And you got. Sometimes the slides are good, you know? Like. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you're right, Perry. You're right. Bends, bends are good. <laughs> That's subjective. Anyway, John, that was a great point about just, especially with students being aware of like being able to just play a scale or a melody straight and, and unarticulated and then yeah. being aware of the stylings that you add to it. For yeah. Sure. And, you know, we also, you know, cause you're right, Perry, I mean, and, and will these like doing like the sleepwalk kind of thing. I mean, it is a great thing to do, but we also have to be aware and conscious of when we use it or when we don't use it. Yeah. And, you know, you hear brass players in jazz talk a lot about playing in the center of their pitch. You know, I was at a clinic once that Terrence Blanchard, the great trumpet player, gave, 
And the amount of time that guy spends every day on the trumpet, focusing on getting the center of the pitch. And then you listen to guitarists, and a lot of times we talk about our gear, we talk about intonating the instrument, we talk about having to, you know, manipulate it a bit, but I don't hear a lot of guitar players talk about how much they focus on playing their scales, playing their lines right in the center of the pitch. Um, I think a lot of people, we just kind of assume as a stringed instrument that there's going to be a slight bend to the notes. And the nth degree here is, you know, we've always talked in New West Guitar Group about the devils in the details, especially when it comes to melodic playing. And it is something that it's, it's hard to practice and it's, it's hard to be inspired to practice. But, you know, a lot of my heroes certainly thought about it. I mean, just go down the list. Guys like Wes Montgomery, even George Benson, the way that these guys play melodies, they think a lot about, you know, the type of sound, the interpretation. And as you've mentioned, Will, here, kind of listing all of these variables. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And the hammer-on, the pull-off, the slide, the vibrato are great guitar techniques when used appropriately in the context of what kind of style of jazz we're playing, too. You know? Mm -hmm. So, Perry, I'm going to turn it to you. Yeah. Could you demonstrate playing a melody and then delivering the melody again with more ornaments. Yeah, sure. And the one thing I'm going to think about is uh, a simple phrase that Tierney Sutton told us after a gig once at Yoshi's, the great vocalist, and she was just like, you know, I just kind of start thinking, like, just try to make every note sound good. I just start from that place. And I mean... That's that's a good place to start from. You can you can get really complicated thinking about all those little details, but if you just sort of take a simple phrase, try to make every note sound good, you're going to be in the ballpark. Okay, so here's a simple melody. The second chorus, I'll ornament it a little bit more. three choruses classic but classic yeah you know just trying to get each note to sort of ring in the tone the way i want it to and a lot of that is the, the touch with the right hand and the coordination with the left hand so yeah i think if you prioritize just your tone uh you can get to a really good place playing melodies and improvising which is just spontaneous melody what if we stuck with that melody and john i had you go between different octaves of the melody Perhaps mm. maybe the, fir the first chorus, you play it down an octave, or, yeah. and then the next chorus up, or vice versa, or with, switch um, between. Yeah, with, with Solar, solar yeah. with the tune Solar. Yeah, that's a great tune to pick. The thing I like about this kind of tune in jazz, too, is it's so rhythmic. Um, and, you know, rhythm, of course, how we where we place our notes, how we put them over the bar line or not, is, is a major part of how musicians in jazz have interpreted melodies. So, for sure, I can, I can mm -hmm, you know... Mm -hmm play it like if we're talking kind of in that normal range you know
it's it, it's a fun one to kind of go play a lot and to mm-hmm. find different ways to rhythmically interpret that melody. You know, supposedly this head was written by a guitar player, um, Chuck Wayne. You know, mm. and it's interesting huh. that Miles got credit for it, which is kind of funny that a guitar player wrote this head. Supposedly, right? Yeah. What do you guys think about like John? I noticed that, that you always do this, and so do I. Like sliding into the note. You know, it's almost mm-hmm. like sub- a subconscious way of hitting a note. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's almost like padding the note so that the note yeah. doesn't just hit you straight on the forehead because yeah. the electric guitar can be a very piercing instrument. So yeah. if I'm just going... All those notes can kind of just punch you in the face. Just... Like that. Yeah. And, you know, Wes, you know, I, you, you listen to how Wes plays melodies. He's doing a, a yeah. fair amount of that. Um, certainly there's, there's ways to overdo that. Yeah. And like, like you pointed out, Will, a student that you worked with recently, it just mm-hmm. slid into everything yeah. that they started from like two frets versus just one fret. Right. Um, yeah. And man, you put that under the microscope and I, I don't know if, if I were to put under the microscope, how I interpret some of these melodies, I would probably tell myself, eh, do a little less of that, a little less of that. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if, if I really studied myself hard like that, because we can always trim the fat from little little ornaments like that too. You know, from our playing, if we're really being conscious of how we're playing a melody. Yeah, but some of them are nice. Some of them are human. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think another good subject is sustain versus over over articulating notes. Mm. Right. Um, I think perhaps in young and again getting back to younger students, sometimes you'll hear them go. As, as opposed to when the melody is, mm-hmm. right? So what if we took I Should Care, which is kind of a ballad, a lot of long notes. Right. You like that vibrato, Perry? <laughs> I do. Yeah, Just I for do. you. So if we're playing at that tempo, sometimes... You, you have to re-articulate it if for some reason the note doesn't quite come out right. You're dealing with arch tops. You're dealing with all these factors that kind of take away a singing quality, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Is one bad or better? Not necessarily, but I think it's something to be aware of if you're really just articulating all these extra ornaments and getting away from basically how you would state it if you were singing the lyrics. Mm -hmm. Something to be mindful of. Yes, I I completely agree. I think a lot of that comes from the limitations of the instrument from the Mm -hmm. volume standpoint, that when you hit the note, it's immediately going to start decaying. Yep. Right? So you don't Mm -hmm. have the luxury of wind coming through it, air coming through it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, you listen to older guitar players play, you know, Herb Ellis, Joe Pass, a lot of the guys, you know, from that generation, and they're not, you know, they're not playing it like... You know, they're playing. I was watching some Ed Bickert videos last night. Man, talk about a guy who plays melodies really Mm. beautifully. And he's playing a telly, which gives you a little more sustain. But um, it just gets down to singing the tunes. I mean, I would never sing that tune. I, 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 I should, exactly. should care, care, care. Yeah. You know, I, I should care. 
I should go without sleeping. You know, you're going to sing it. Now the lyrics like a guitar player would play it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it, Frank Potenza brought that up to me. I remember years ago in a lesson at USC, he, I was playing a melody like that. And he's like, wait, you would never sing the melody like that, you know? And he was really mm -hmm. particular about, about melodies. And it, it again, yeah, the limitations of the instrument, us trying to make things pr more pronounced because the sustain isn't there on a box. Yeah, it, it's, it's a trade-off. It's part of this part of this instrument i think every instrument has its um quote disability to yeah. match up what other instruments do you know something like a vibraphone for example you know that's a lot of sustain but that instrument also like it, you know it can be really washy and really hard to play in that bebop way i was talking to my buddy who's a vibraphonist the other day about it i mean that's a boy that's a tricky instrument to get really clear sometimes you know well speaking of instruments without um Melodies without lyrics. Will, did you have something on Bird, perhaps with strings, that you wanted to discuss? Man, any of the tracks on that album. Like, if you listen to um, Everything Happens to Me. Yeah. Just the way he, you know, we're talking about ornaments, his virtuosic playing in general, but the way he plays the melodies over these lush orchestrations, it's just completely virtuosic and, and beautiful. I mean, just listen to that whole album i i have like a collection of i think there was like three different sessions that they did and you can just listen down and i mean it's so it's so great so charlie parker with strings kind of essential melodic interpretation listening right there yeah i would also throw coltrane ballads on that list in mm -hmm. terms of horn players and how they interpret melodies without lyrics because mm -hmm. maybe john to your point there's like a balance to be found because if you're not singing the lyrics maybe you have a chance to interpret the melody a little differently you know yeah you know you wonder and and would the composers be like upset that you did that to their melody i mean yeah. or would they be like oh that's great that that's how that person's playing that that melody um i mean we think a lot about this we certainly are trying to pay respect to a lot of how people you know another record that's amazing is coleman hawkins encounters ben webster listen to how those guys play melody. It's almost like they're in a competition to see who can play the melody best, um, you know? And, uh, but yeah, it's, it, you know, it's interesting the, the, the choices that we have to make artistically um, should come from a place where we've been aware of, of what the possibilities are. Like anything that just is automatic, doubling notes and repeating notes you know, it, it should be thought about a little bit, especially when we study jazz yeah. the way that all of us who are listening to the podcast are probably studying jazz because we want to play the music, you know, in, in the, the best way we can possibly play it, you know. What about like Benson doing like breezing? I mean, you got to think of as, as a guitar player, he put melodic guitar like on the map in a way that few people had before him, right? Oh, man. Or even before that, listen to his duo with Freddie Hubbard on Here's That Rainy Day. And he's yeah. playing this beautiful chord melody. And you can always hear the melody on top. Or one of the most infamous versions is that that version of Tenderly he plays over and over yeah, yeah. and over again from 89 from um, from Tenderly. But you watch all the clips online of gear reviews and there's Benson playing that version of Tenderly. But you he plays it and he makes sure that you can really hear that melody on top. Because um, one of his idols was Nat King Cole, who was probably one of the great melodic vocalists in history, you know. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, it comes from a lot of our inspiration. Do you guys find that like with modern jazz guitar, that kind of dark, semi-hollow body kind of sound that was pioneered by maybe Matheny and Stern and Sco and into Kurt and all of these guys, that sometimes it can be a little hard to 
um, explore some of these kinds of degrees of, of melody? Or do you guys find that that's... I'm just curious because yeah. I find the arch top helps me so much with getting a wide dynamic range it. and getting a different range of articulation because it's really a semi-acoustic guitar. You know, Will, I'm curious what you think about that and Perry too. I think there are arguments both ways. I think it's hard to kind of argue one over the other. In my case, I, I'm, I enjoy art, interpreting melodies differently on an electric versus an arch top for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Matheny, no, no Stern, and Sko, those very different sounds, even different guitars, right? But yep. in terms of the hollow body being limited and that sort of darker sound, um, I don't think it's hindered Matheny at all when it comes mm -hmm. to playing melodies. He's obviously explored way beyond that sound, but that's one of the things I really admire about his sound is that he's able to get that sort of darker sound that still is, has clarity to it can still cut with a mm -hmm. big ensemble so well yeah well, you know and like kurt rosenwinkel if i should lose you from deep song yeah. that's a beautiful way he plays that melody yeah. but that's a ton of sustain and i don't even consider that a super dark sound but no, no. um you know it's just interesting to me i hear a lot of players play with a really really dark tone and I've personally in the past, when I've experimented with that, with semi-hollow semi bodies guitars, I've struggled with a lot of the parameters that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's, 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 it's really like design, that sound is, seems to be designed to play in a certain ensemble or a certain style with certain kinds of lines. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It's just something I've, I've thought a lot about in terms of balancing the melodic interpretation with the actual philosophy of tone that you yeah. have, you know. So yeah. let's do let's do one thing before we wrap it up here. I want to take Happy Birthday, the melody Happy Birthday, and have us each go around. We'll play the melody, and in between the melody, we're going to complement ourselves with maybe some some counterpoint melodies or like a secondary melody. Uh, if you listen to Wynton okay. Marsalis do this, there's a great master class. He's somewhere in France, and he's just playing the melody a cappella, and then he plays little lines in between. So this is kind of getting into you know, how to create a counter melody, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna do it in C. Just simple things like that, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Melody, counter melody. Let's see if I can do it. Uh, mm -hmm. Slow down there. I, I did it uh, <laughs> double time versus where you yeah, did yeah. it. Yeah, right? yeah. Try, try it half time. Uh, wait, hold on. <laughs> expand it show, show it to me again so if i just sing it happy birthday to you oh you're just happy adding measures okay you're thinking at this pace yeah Thank you. 
Nice, Perry. John, you want to give it a shot? Sure. interesting like i i didn't really yeah. play the melody in some parts because i wanted to keep going with but certain that's ideas <laughs> an example we all know the melody and we can all immediately start developing on it i would challenge anyone listening to do that exact same thing and maybe think about play the melody in one register and then deliberately play a counter melody in a lower register or flip it on its head right these are these are things okay. that i think are just great introductions to interpreting and developing on melodies for sure can i pose yeah. a question that might spark a, a a debate that would last longer than this episode what <laughs> um do you like that setup that's really that's a big yeah okay. i think we need to do a whole season called the high action debates where we just yeah. don't have any instruments and we just argue with each other about everything yeah no so so the the idea is um does rhythm determine melody hmm. or does your melody determine your phrasing Mm-hmm. Does rhythm determine your melody, or does the melody determine your phrasing? I mean, isn't yeah, chicken I, and the egg. I yeah, exactly. I, I remember for years thinking like, oh yeah, you know, rhythm determines melody. Like you're, you know, that's sort of what you're taught in jazz school. This idea that like, you know, if if you play the correct rhythm, it's going to sound good no matter what notes you play. But I think there's a level beyond that where it's like the melody tells the story, which is tells your phrasing, which tells your rhythm. I think so, the rhythm determines the melody. I really, you know what? I I think that's a way of thinking, and it's not a bad well, way of thinking. But like, this is also coming from Koontz, uh, who I yeah. know you guys have spent time with as well. But I remember posing that to him, and he was like, "You know, I actually disagree. I I think that melody determines your story sure. and your phrasing and your narrative." So, I've had this debate with people and like drummers especially, and they just shoot me down. But <laughs> I think it's like I think it's something to think about yeah okay last thing here's well, my argument what if yeah. i take granted that melody has a lot of repeated notes but that that puts the melody the notes in a form with that one eighth note rest or that quarter note rest. Yeah. Well, so I would argue yeah. Me- yeah. rhythm determines melody, but like John said, it kind of is chicken and the egg. It's also a different study. I mean, it's great to study both, but if you take Henry Mancini Moon River and you know try to sing it without taking any breaths, good luck how long you're gonna get with that. You know, yep. Moon River wider than a mile, I'm walking you in style someday. You're just kind of playing through it. But the way that Mancini set up those lyrics you know, oh, dream maker, you heartbreaker, wherever you're going, I'm going my way mm-hmm. to drifters. Like the fact that that lands on the beat versus everything else before it sets up the next phrase. Um, 
Yeah, I think that that melody is determining that rhythm because it's just the nature of how to sing that song. But if I'm playing something like Scrapple from the Apple, then maybe the the and the fact that a, a great drummer can play that melody so clearly, yeah. then yeah, then in that case, I would say that the rhythm is going to maybe determine the melodic features of Scrapple from the Apple maybe a little bit more than the than the than the notes would. Um, but it's it is an interesting question. The debate the, the debate goes on. Yeah. Uh, Will, what else do you have to add to this wonderful subject before we? We have gone over here. time. We're we're operating in the red. We need to wrap this episode up. <laughs> but we do want to remind you to tune in next week for episode nineteen, which is going to be it's about, about the touring guitarist. The, the tour. It's oh. going to be really fun. We're going to have all kinds of do you crazy road stories and Michigan hotel rooms and all kinds of awesome stories. Do you remember, what uh, it was John like Perry? You guys got anything to add before we wrap it up? Well, I would like to take a moment to thank our Patreon sponsors, particularly we got some new ones this week, Ryan, David, and Napat. Thank you guys for joining us over there. And for those of you who are listening on your chosen platform, um, you can think about joining us over there because we've got the video content so you can actually see our what we're doing on the fretboard. Um, be sure to reach out to us directly there. And also, we've got a ton of new Instagram followers. Thanks for following us over there. It's been fun to kind of pick a new guitar to feature each week in the Archtop highlight and um and also some other footage from past new west guitar group performances so be sure to check us out there we appreciate our new followers over on the patreon page thank you All right. make sure to tag the high action podcast in your happy birthday challenge this week on instagram we oh want to hear it god the happy birthday challenge well i think i've got more practicing to do but looking forward to next week um touring guitarist uh, I'm going to talk about how to pack the suitcase, okay? Will, you got you got something you can talk about for touring? Yeah, we, we know you, you're you a master packer, Perry. We got that. We got that. <laughs> John's going to talk about uh, the differences between global entry, clear, and um, I don't know. What, what would be the last Man, one? Man, the only touring I've done is hauling the polytone from the living room to the kitchen. <laughs> so I don't, I, you know, I don't even know what we're, t- I don't even know what your guys are talking about. No. Yeah, I'm also, I am going to talk about the benefits of the Amex Gold um, credit card and how you can get extra points touring that way. So it'll be a whole, yeah. I mean, it's going to be a riveting discussion. No, we're going to, we're going to talk about more fun stuff than that for sure. Touring via a pandemic. It's going to be fun. See you next week. Bye.